today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The NAFTA, it's not really NAFTA anymore, is it? The, the, uh, what do they call it? The American-Mexico trade deal, U.S.-Mexico trade deal. Donald Trump announcing it just a few minutes ago from the Oval Office that there is apparently a deal between the U.S. and Mexico. NAFTA is being scrapped. This part of the deal seems to deal mostly with the automotive industry. But there is a large piece of this missing, and you know what that is. It starts with C and ends with A and has an ad in the middle of it. Canada! Yes, sorry, Luke through the glass here on the thing was looking at me strange. Like, what does that mean? Canada missing from this deal. Uh, Marvin Ryder joins us now from the Groot School of Business. Sir, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, Marvin, where does this leave us now that Canada and Me- or that the U.S. and Mexico have been able to make a trade? Where are we in this? <laughs> well, I'm I'm actually not as worried about this, and I don't I don't think you should throw away the word NAFTA at this point. Uh, for the last three weeks or so, the United States and Mexico have been holding bilateral talks, meaning just between themselves, and that's because there were some issues in the NAFTA negotiations that really only involved the United States and Mexico. For instance. Uh, Mr. Trump had asked uh, the United, uh, had asked Mexico to raise its minimum wage. They had some concerns around uh, uh, their um, uh, trade surpluses. They wanted Mexico to promise to bring them down. They had some concerns also around, uh, uh, of course, immigration, and they wanted to work all of this in there. And if the United States and Mexico were talking, even if we were at the table, the discussion really didn't involve us. So it made sense for them to try to clear the way. And also, apparently, as they've been talking over the last three weeks, they talked about a couple of things that interest us. One is the idea of the sunset clause, that this negotiation would have to be repeated in five years. Mexico's no fan of that. And apparently, as part of their discussions, they had a little breakthrough on that. And they also had a breakthrough on dispute resolution. You might remember that the Americans' idea of dispute resolution was, if it involves us, only American judges decide it. If it involves you, we'll add some American judges to your judges, and they'll decide it. Apparently, now the details are very, very sketchy at this point, but apparently in this uh, uh, will deal that they've struck so far, many of those issues are resolved. Now the challenge, Canada is supposed to rejoin, whether Trump likes it or not, Mr. Lighthizer, who's the person in charge of this, he wants Canada to rejoin. I wouldn't be surprised if Christia Freeland is already flying to Washington uh, to be there either later today or Tuesday. And the other rush here is they really want to have everything all wrapped up by August 31st. That would allow the sitting, Ameri- uh, sitting Mexican president to sign this deal. The new president takes office December 1. If you can get a deal between Canada, Mexico, and the United States done by August 31st, there actually is 90 days before that new president takes power. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on Canada to come to the table. I'm not actually worried about dispute resolution. I'm not worried about the sunset clause. I'm not worried, actually, about what they may have sorted out around autos. There are some uniquely Canadian issues, though, that have to be solved. One of those, of course, is supply management. Donald Trump's no fan of that. And also, he has some concerns around what we call the de minimis, the de minimis levels that Canadians can bring back from shopping in the United States. Right now, at the border, it's quite generous, what you can bring back. But if I order something from Amazon.com and it costs more than $25, I'm supposed to pay a duty on it. Donald Trump says we need to raise those. And I think that's what the negotiations will take. But it could go very fast. We could have a deal by this weekend. But I'm wondering, so the point you make is that we're not at the table, and that's because many of the discussions, many of the issues right now were about Mexico and had to be dealt with. But how much pressure is going to be on Canada? Because I'm assuming, 
you can tell me that I'm assuming wrong, so we know the danger of that. But I'm assuming that some of the deals or some of the levels of agreement that they reach with Mexico, the expectation is going to be that Canada will follow along with whatever Mexico did, whether it's automotive or something else. Is that a fair assumption that we are going to be expected to follow in the footsteps of Mexico? So I'm going to say yes, uh, but but you should understand that even though Mexico and the United States have been chatting, Canada has been chatting with both sides. So there's nothing here that's going to come as a surprise to us. We knew what the Mexicans were talking about. In fact, sometimes the Mexicans said, look, they want to talk about dispute resolution. We're thinking this. How does that work with you, Canada? We said, yeah, you get that. We'd be happy. So the, the things that they've negotiated, I think, we'll be quite ready to accept. We're not going to have a gun to our head. The gun to our head, though, will be the things that they did not talk about that are now uniquely Canadian, and the gun is simply, let's do this very quickly, and and you and I have talked about this several times, this only works if the United States is also prepared to negotiate and make a deal. If they say, okay, we've got all this from Mexico, now you just agree to these things and we'll have a deal, and we go, well, wait a minute, that's not what we're happy about here, let's talk, talking takes time. One other quick note about this Mexican deal, this was all supposed to have been announced, not today, but last Thursday, and it tells you that even now the Mexican representatives aren't completely sure they've finished all of their chatting. It's hard to make these things happen quickly. I understand these windows of opportunity, but it's better that it be done correctly than quickly. So is the deal inevitable with Canada? I mean, do you see it as an inevitability? Well, I'm going to say yes, again, because... Uh, some of these things, like our supply management system, we've dealt with in two previous trade negotiations, one with the European Union, known as the CETA deal, the other with the Trans-Pacific Partners. Uh, in this case, it was Australia and New Zealand. They wanted to have more access for their dairy products into Canada, and we said, yes, we'll, we'll give you more access. Europe will give you more access in exchange for things that we wanted to have access to. So we've already chipped away a bit at supply management, and I think if there's any farmers listening to us, uh, no, I don't think uh, Justin Trudeau and Christy Freeland are going to throw it out the window, but there will be a transition, and there is going to be a little more foreign product in our market. We should get used to this, but uh, I, I think we'll find a way to make this happen. So I, I think it's quite possible now they've got Mexico resolved. We could have a deal by the weekend, but if we don't, and it takes, say, till September 15th, this is a very complicated deal. hadn't been done in 23 years. I, you know, I don't know why people are all antsy. It's taken a whole year. Well, it's such a big deal. It's a trillion dollars in trade. Those things should never go quickly. But, Marvin, then you, you've just pointed out that we could have a deal by the weekend. To me, that's stunning that, that we're talking about just a few days away. It is a trillion dollar deal. How is it possible, even though that Canada knows what the U.S. and Mexico have each been talking about and Canada's been yep. talking, how do we possibly even just put up the paperwork and write the documents in the time before the weekend? Okay, that's fair enough. So what we would sign by the weekend is what's known as a letter of understanding. Uh, with, uh, and if you ever read one of these things, it, it covers some broad framework issues, and it says, and by the way, all our lawyers will get together and work out all the words over the next couple of months. So we won't have a 175-page document ready by the weekend. But again, you need to remember that we have been talking for a year, and in that year we have already closed nearly 90% of the clauses of a NAFTA agreement. So even though they didn't get headlines, we'd talked about so many different areas that we'd come to agreement to, and all that was left were the big sticking items, and some of those had Mexico's name written on them. A couple of them still have Canada's name on them, but that's how close we are. When you've got 90 to 95% of it in the bank, can you get a deal on these last few? 
again, to take you back 23 years, this dispute resolution item, it was still being negotiated three hours before the signatories to the document. Mm. Uh, the, they, they do take that kind of time, but they do come together. So uh, if there's a window, and this, the key to this is if the Americans want to talk and negotiate, we can make this happen. If America just says, this is our position, take it or leave it, we may not have a deal by the weekend at all. The fact that Mexico and the U.S. have now come to, to some sort of terms on this, how much expectation then is there that either by this weekend or whenever that Canada is going to be able to come to a deal? In other words, is the Trudeau government in any way backed into a corner with the expectation that you will come up with something? And if even if that doesn't seem like it's all that favorable to Canadians, you're going to sign something. Are they going to be politically okay if they walk away and say, no, we're not doing this? Uh, well, no, I don't think they would be. If we're this close now, you need to try to bring this baby home. Uh, you know, it's like you, you negotiate on a house, you sort everything else out, but uh, you're arguing over the stainless steel uh, refrigerator. <laughs> Are you going to let that break the deal? You've got everything else sorted out. So there is going to be pressure on Canada to come together, but there is also in the United States. And, and by the way, here's another part of the pressure that's on the United States. It would be our expectation that if we do have a deal signed, then guess what? Those tariffs on steel and aluminum say goodbye, uh, which would be lovely for all of us, especially in Hamilton. So, you know, America, you know, there's pressure on you now. If we make this deal, are you ready to come through with your half of the equation or at least set a timeline? If not immediately, not September 1, but by September 15th or September 30th, we would expect those tariffs to go away because now NAFTA would supersede those tariffs. So there's, there's skin in the game for everybody here, and it is a dance. It should come together. Occasionally these fall apart, normally more for political reasons. So if you can remember things like Middle East peace accords, trying to get various Arab countries and Israel together, those can sometimes bog down. But I think because so much progress has been made, the momentum's in the right direction. We could very well have a deal uh, very, very quickly. You mentioned the tariffs that have been, uh, are in play. Have we been, how much have we been feeling any of this already? So I have to give you two answers to that, and that's because of short-term and long-term. Uh, when the tariffs were applied, we, Canadians, had contracts with American companies to buy our steel and aluminum, and those American companies didn't have an immediate alternative supply, so they've just sucked it up. And in fact, most American companies have applied to the American government asking for exemptions from those tariffs because they didn't have enough time to prepare and deal with them. Something like, uh, I think it's 18,000 American companies have applied for exemptions to those tariffs. Where it's begun to hurt us, though, is on the second one, which is we call long-term. This is people placing orders for 2019, 2020, 2021. The conventional wisdom was that these tariffs were going to be a short-term kind of a thing. So they said, well, I'll tell you what, uh, Stelco, tell you what, DeFasco, I'm not going to put my order in for the spring of 2019 just to see what happens here. So they've been waiting, and as a result, that makes nervousness. All these big companies, steel mills, aluminum producers, etc., have what is known as a book of business that often looks two, three, four years down the road. And as you look at 2019 and 2020, it's looking a little thin. So if we could get a deal now, those orders could get placed quickly and everything will be just fine. But if we're still talking about this at the end of December, then that's when it's really going to start to hit us in 2019. Okay, so the New York Times, uh, which is, last I checked, not a fan of Donald Trump, um, to the contrary, not a fan of Donald Trump at all. Uh, they had a piece today, and they were talking about this debate, this negotiation, and saying if the states can get a deal, and if they can get something that they want from Mexico, that their, their words, it's a, quote, significant win 
for Donald Trump. And I, I was fascinated by that again, because they really don't say many things about him that would be too positive. Mm-hmm. This is, it, it's not a very popular thing to say, but Donald Trump ran on an American first platform. If he's able to get a good deal out of Mexico, this is a big deal for him, is it not? Well, right. So not only did he run on a platform about that, but also the tear it up thing. I, I don't like NAFTA. The first thing I'm going to do is tear it up. And that was our fear from the beginning. Uh, it will be a victory. But of course, the trick here is everyone's going to have something to win. In a good, successful negotiation, it isn't that the United States won and Canada and Mexico lost. Everybody's got to come back and say, well, thank God we did this. The general consensus going into these negotiations was that at 23 years, it was an old deal, and it did need to be improved. And there were things that have happened, mostly like the Internet, over the last 23 years that were never imagined in the first deal. So a refresh deal is good for everybody. Trump will will tout the things that he feels he got out of this, but we will have some things that we'll say that we got out of this as well, and everyone's got to be seen to winning. And, And look, again, for Donald Trump, He's had so few victories. I think that's another thing to remember. Remember, he was going to dismantle Obamacare. That didn't happen. He was going to uh, you know, denuclearize North Korea. That's not happening, uh, so on and so forth. To get any kind of a trade deal would be a big victory. But to me, it's not really a victory for Trump. It's a victory for Mr. Lighthizer and Mr. Ross, the Commerce Secretary. They're the ones who've made the magic happen here. And I finish with this. The reason I ask that question is simply because if it is a victory and if he perceives it as a victory, is that going to embolden him to squeeze Canada a little harder because now I've got a good victory in my back pocket and I can go after the other country here and try and get more out of them because I can do the same thing? Yeah, again, if we were negotiating directly with Mr. Trump, then I understand exactly what you're saying. But Mr. Lighthizer, uh, it's, it's a different little world there, and they don't suddenly throw new demands on the table at the very last minute. Uh, everything that we wanted to talk about have all been spelled out in documents that have been shared between the three nations, so there would be no last-minute surprise. In fact, the last-minute surprise might be that America softens its position. Just to give you a quick example of this, in talking with Mexico, rather than a sunset clause at five years, what they, what America proposed, and this is significant, this is America proposing it, said what we'll do is we'll do a review of the deal after five years. It'll take a year to do that review, and if we're not happy, then it would expire in ten years. Well, now that, may, that makes a lot more sense to me, given the complexity here. We shouldn't have a five-year time limit. We've got a maybe a ten-year time limit, but then a rolling five-year reviews. That's perfect. That's exactly what we would want, or some variation on that. So it'll be very easy for us to get there, but that's because America softened its position. If you ask Donald Trump if America softened his position, he won't remember what his initial position is. So therefore, he won't. He won't. Oh, I never did that. I didn't soften anything. I I had Canada had it right out of the throat. Uh, that's the way he'll argue it. But I think if we look at it solidly, there's been some movement on all fronts. So when this deal came, when this deal was announced, or when we heard this morning that there was going to be a, an announcement today, were those in the federal government in the t- big offices of the federal government were they applauding? Were they thinking this is great then because now we're right on the precipice, or were they saying, "Hmm, where do we go from here?" No, I'd say they were applauding because in getting this deal with Mexico, Mexico managed to get at least two of the items that were bothering us in a way that we wanted. So bravo, Mexico. Not only did you sort out your specific issues, but you helped us on a couple that we had concerns about. Uh, And so now we're getting right down to just truly two or three issues that only affect Canada and the United States. Uh, They said, okay, let's get to work. And that's why I'm saying I think people have boarded planes. They're probably flying to Washington, even as we speak, ready to start talking tomorrow morning and see if they can get this baby to land by Friday. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate the time. Thank you for this. My pleasure. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. In studio, as he is very often, not surprisingly, since he works here at 900 CHML. I have a corner right there that uh, I kind of just lay in the fetal position for hours on end, yes. waiting for my time. He is like George Costanza. He has a desk, <laughs> he has a bed under, under his, his desk, desk. Yeah. and he just sleeps at the station here until he's called upon. We just bang on the, yep. Rick, wake up. Here I am. Rick Zamprin of two, 900 CHML. Two things on your first two topics there. Uh, I believe Scott Thompson has uh, back-to-back long weekenditis, and <laughs> <laughs> I also think the cassette tape is going to be a boon for pencils once yes. again, because you need a pencil to uh, rotate the cassette uh, to get it to uh, the starting position? There are three functions for a pencil in life. One is, of course, to write something with or pencil something with. Uh, Two is, as you say, back in the day to turn the cassette. And three, and most complicated, (laughs) if you've ever tried to string a fishing rod. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And you have the line, the the thing, the spool, and you don't have someone else. You have to put a pencil through it. Yeah. And then put it between your toes, the pencil, and hold it in place <laughs> while you're reeling yeah. the fishing rod and hope no one in your family comes down to the basement to see you in this awkward position. Yes. Are, are you also of the vintage, I'm not sure if you did this, but we got a big kick out of this when I was a kid, is uh, you have your standard pencil where at the end of the pencil, or the other end of the pencil, is the eraser and that metal component that yes. holds the eraser. Or we used to take the eraser out and using a uh, an old-fashioned pencil sharpener, sharpen the, uh, whether it was aluminum or what the hell uh, the, the, the metal was made out of, sharpen that and, like, carve out, uh, I don't know, uh, like uh, a quarter of an inch of this metal and use it as a fake earring. Because it was a it was a gold kind of color. Well, I thought you were colored. building a weapon. No, I no, you were it was, building, like, it bungee more sticks for to go hunting for rabbits more, or something. More for fashion than eating wow. wild game. No, never, never. The only metal we ever used for anything fashion was when we were very young, we would straighten out a uh, paper clip and use it as like pretend braces. <laughs> really? <laughs> and hope no one bumped your cheek because it would poke right through. Uh, these are strange, strange things. Yes, sorry to bring that up. No, no, it's, um, I- I'll have to try that though. I'll have to go home today. I'll cut. Do it. I- but you need an old fashioned pencil You can't sharp. put it in the automatic pencil. It'll just kill it. Uh, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. Yeah, you need one of those handhelds where your fingers are just dying a slow death as you're sharpening this pencil. It's a week before school. Children listening, yes. please do not try this at home. <laughs> or you, if you do, do it with parent supervision. Yes, because right now, as I say, it sounds like you sharpen this and then <laughs> chuck it at your sister, and it's like playing darts no, with an old pencil. It never happened. Never happened yet. That's why my sister still has <laughs> scars on her back yeah, from yeah. the sharpened <laughs> pencil knobs. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. uh, I don't know how we go on a segue from sharpened pencil weapons to Brooke Henderson, she, who she is was a golfing weapon. This she, she, very go. well, then. Yeah. Very, oh, see, that's why you're the radio professional. Uh, she was. Brooke Henderson, Canadian golfer, won the CP Women's Open in Regina. Yeah. First Canadian woman in four plus decades to win the national tournament at home. You wrote a piece. Uh, people can find it online. Uh, Rick Zamperin, Brooke Henderson is already the best Canadian golfer ever. Yes. You standing by that? I, I stand by that, and you will notice that I did not say female No, you did not. Ever. Just yes. period. Canadian golfer, period. And see, that's where I disagree with you okay. with a caveat. I still think it's got to be Mike Weir. Okay. But I certainly believe that the opportunity for Brooke Henderson is that it's very unlikely she will not someday Mm-hmm. be the greatest Canadian male or female golfer right. ever. Yeah. 
Well, uh, you know, Mike Weir is probably the most appropriate uh, comparison because, um, you know, he's won a major championship on the PGA Tour. Brooke has a major championship on the Women's Tour, the LPGA Tour. Uh, Weir, basically for 19 seasons uh, on the Men's Tour, was a force. Uh, maybe not, uh, not not all 19 seasons, but, I mean, he was ranked as high as fifth in the world. Uh, he was sixth at one point as well in, a, in the following season. He's won, uh, you know, tens of millions of dollars, uh, or his brook, I think, is just over four million now. Um, but the angle I'm going with is, you know, Weir was on tour for, and, and he's basically the, the one that I would compare him to uh, the most. Uh, you know, in a 19-year stretch, uh, he won that major. He won multiple tournaments, eight, in fact, which is tied for the all-time Canadian record of George Newson and Sandra Post. Um and and he was the darling of Canadian golf and probably the most recognizable golfer in this country. In three-plus seasons, Brooke Henderson has won seven tournaments, so one off the pace, has, as I mentioned, the major, uh, millions of dollars in her bank account, and has done so against some really good golfers in the LPGA Tour. So I see her, you know, when her career is done being, as I mentioned in the blog, uh, you know, having probably triple the amount of, of tournament oh, wins easily. than anybody else. That could easily happen. And, you know, a two-time Canadian female athlete of the year already in her young age. Uh, she is winning over young golf fans uh, from a women's perspective, which we really haven't seen. You know, Lori Kane has been a force on the women's tour for a while now. Uh, but we really haven't seen a Canadian golfer on the women's side, do what she's done in terms of fan uh, loyalty and, and and really having a, a huge momentum behind her. You, you're lying there. We haven't seen on the women's side, yeah. and you know to play devil's advocate, and I don't even it's not even really devil's advocate. It's the reality. When you say we haven't seen, there are many people, Rick, who have never seen. Brooke Henderson, because they don't watch women's golf. They will turn on men's golf if it's on and watch Tiger or Phil or whomever. There are a lot of people. And I think part of why your argument is going to have a hard time holding water with some people is they would say Mm -hmm. LPGA versus PGA, come on. Yes. So what if, and I know we're playing the what if game now, but what if Brooke was a man? And on the PGA Tour and already at the age of 20 has seven tournament wins and a major championship. She'd be ahead of Tiger Woods. She'd be ahead of Mike Weir, I think, depending yes. on what that major was. But still, I mean, you're talking the Open Championship, the Masters, the PGA, or the U.S. Open. I mean, if any Canadian won any of those, as did Mike Weir in the Masters in 03, they'd be heralded from here to eternity. So I think saying that because she plays on the women's tour, it kind of downgrades her achievements. And I can buy a little bit into that, but it's she's playing against the best in the world in what her federation has, uh, you know, structured. Right, and what my, and my suggestion is not that the competition is not good. Right, it's that it's hard to sometimes convince people of how great she is when people I don't watch her sport. Yes, when I agree they with don't that. watch, it's not that she's playing against women they've gathered up off the public yeah. course and said, here, play against... No, it's, it's great competition. It's just the numbers are not mm-hmm. comparable to the people who watch men's. Completely agree. Um, we can also look at, you know, other athletes, and I mainly point to Olympians. A lot of the female athletes, uh, they don't get, uh, you know, as recognized as some of the men athletes. You know, you look at 
women's hockey in the Olympics. We can name maybe a handful of women's Canadian women's hockey players. We can name the full roster of the men's players in the last Olympics. It's just, it's unfortunate. Plus the guys who didn't make it. Plus the guys who didn't make it, yeah. And, you know, here's Team B, all the guys that got snubbed. But, uh, you know, I, I think Brooke has shown in her very limited exposure on in, in pro golf that she's been a remarkable athlete and has, when she sets her mind to it, which I really think she did this weekend, she was so focused and, you know, didn't crack a smile until, you know, she was walking up the 18th fairway. Uh, I think when she puts her mind to it, she can be the not only the best Canadian golfer, but the best golfer, period. How much of, and, and again, I, I, I say at as of today, I still say Mike Weir, again, with the big asterisk that she right. is 20 years old. There's yeah. a very, very strong chance that she will blow past him. How much of Mike Weir's reputation and standing in Canadian golf is the fact that he won the Masters. What if he had won yeah. the PGA Championship instead? Or even the British Open, which right. is a huge deal, but it's not the Masters. The yeah. Masters is the the, the one. Yeah, it is It is the uh, first major of the golf season. It's at the same course year after year after year. It's, it's a legendary, iconic, I mean, you've been there, uh, golf club. And uh, we've seen some phenomenal finishes and some, uh, some incredible, um, you know, uh, tournaments that have ended in, in disaster for some because of the, you know, the course plays so tough. Um, it's just got the legend. Yeah. It's the I legend think, of I think it. if, if Mike had won, say, the U.S. Open, I think it would have been very important, but I don't think it would have been as humongous mm-hmm. as, you know, him winning the Master, and especially, you know, it went in a playoff against Len Matisse. I mean, there was a lot of drama behind it, being the first Canadian ever to win a major, I think was, you know, uh, huge in that respect too. But yeah, I think the, the Masters was that cherry on top. Here's the other thing about Brooke Henderson. And again, I understand that I'm not thinking this is going to happen, but one of the things about individual sports, and we have seen it with other people. We saw it with David Duvall. We saw it with Eugenie Bouchard in a lot of ways. Hmm. Inexplicably, people can just drop off the cliff. And and I don't expect that at all from Brooke. There's no reason to believe that could happen. But we have seen people have that happen to them before, yeah. and and not even just individual sports. I mean, baseball players, Chuck Knobloch, Steve Sachs, yep. guys who just um, got the ripped. Rick Ankiel, it, it yeah. was it was gone. That could still happen. Again, it's a one in a thousand chance, probably yeah. with her. But she, until the, she gets to that part where she has passed Weir or passed mm-hmm. whoever, mm-hmm. it, it's a you never know. This may be her highlight. This could this could be it. I mean, really, she she suffers. Knock on wood, she suffers an injury, uh, has some kind of uh, you know catastrophic event in her life. I know her grandfather passed away earlier this year, and this was obviously a very emotional you know time for her and winning this tournament. But yeah, something could happen to her either physically or mentally, and she could never be the same. So, I mean, she might be stuck on seven wins forever. Uh, I doubt it, but yeah, you I never know. It's, we, we've seen stranger things, especially in sports. Yeah, I, I fully expect that within a year or two, she will have blown past Post and Knudsen and Weir and yeah. all of them and is standing by herself, and then your piece is absolutely fair. Uh, has she, this weekend, has she clinched the Lou Marsh Award for this year? Wow. Uh, I think probably, you know, being the first... Canadian woman in 45 years to win the national championship. Uh, I'm not sure how you top that. Unless a Eugenie Bouchard goes out and wins, you know, a, a major on the on the WTA tour, which I don't anticipate. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, you haven't been drinking this morning, have you? No, I have no. not. No, it's simply water and tea. Orange Peco, thanks. Uh, but no, I, th- I think, you know, winning this tournament, and especially the way she's played this year, because she's been, you know, really good. Uh, and all golfers will have their up and downs, and, and she's had that this year too. But I think this victory, I think, seals it. I would, I would think, because I was trying to think earlier today, 
There's no Olympics. No. So, and that's often where you will get people who will stand out, Penny Alexiak yeah, or something like right. that. Uh, even if the Leafs come out of the gate and they're great, like a lot of people think they're going to be, they're not winning a cup in 2018. Right. Yeah. That would mean that maybe somebody from that team, if it happens, might get 2019. I, I don't see anything down the road barring some crazy yeah. thing that no one sees coming. Yeah, I, I think like, she's pretty close. A, a Joey Votto. A, they're not giving uh, it to Votto. He won it last year. Yeah, Hinchcliffe. Yeah, none of these guys uh, or, or women uh, really. I mean, it's an uphill battle for everybody else right now. It is. It, it really is. I think she's um, she's put herself in an exceptional place here. The number that I'm interested in is what, in terms of victories, she ends up with in her career. I mean, she's at seven right now in three plus, three and a half seasons. Uh, she's won multiple times each and every year on the LPGA Tour. I- I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know, is, is 20 a stretch? The all-time record for women, I think, is 88, which is, uh, I don't think she's going to get there. Nope. But, I don't know, 20? If, if she gets seven every three years, let's just say she ends up winning another tournament this year. So she's got eight in four seasons. Um, another four seasons, she can double that. She's up to 16. Another four, she's into the 20s. Okay, so at what point then, let, let's let's play along and let's say that was the case. Let's say three years from now, she's got 14, that mm-hmm. she keeps on at the exact same pace. Right. At what point... Does she start to decline? No. At oh. what point do Canadians actually really begin? Because I think most Canadians know who she is. Right. And I think there's a fair number who may have tuned in to watch her. Certainly they've seen her on the highlight shows right. or whatever else. At what point, if ever, does Brooke Henderson become, oh, she's in the final grouping on Sunday, I've got to tune in and watch? Because I'm not sure that exists right now. Yeah, you know what? The LPGA uh, is just not there yet. And guess what? In about five to ten years, the PGA might not be there with the Tiger Woods effect. I mean, I was uh, Tiger's one of the, if not the greatest golfer of all time. Golfers today, thanks to... Thank Tiger because he injected a huge amount of dollars into the the purse week in and week out. Uh, when he goes away, I mean the PGA right now when he doesn't play in a tournament is hard pressed to find someone that people will attach to. Phil Mickelson has a good following, you know Jordan Spieth, Dustin Johnson, all these guys are amazing players and they have followings, but it's not to the impact or the effect of Tiger Woods. Well, look what they're doing with this pay per view thing just with Tiger Woods with and him Phil and Tiger, Mickelson. Yeah. We we can get rid of all the other riffraff exactly. and, ch- and chat two guys and only have the two you care about anyway and yeah. just have them play. So when they go. Uh, I, I don't know. And I, I'm not sure the LPGA will ever get there. Okay, and, but and, let me... And even in this country. But let me say this then. Let's say that Global decides on Sunday that even though the, PG, the LPGA is not being shown somewhere, right. Brooke Henderson is in the final grouping. Brooke Henderson's about to win another major. We're going to pick this up from the Golf mm-hmm. Channel or whatever, mm-hmm. and we're going to show it. Do Canadians en masse tune in to watch her like they would w- with Tiger in a red shirt on yeah. a Sunday? And if not now... When? What What would she have to do to be able to be that athlete that right. we would all say, I've got to see her on Sunday? Yeah, I would. I, I can only envision that happening uh, if it's a Canadian Women's Championship and maybe a U.S. or British Open. And even then, I think it's a bit of a stretch because, uh, you know, golf fans are primarily gravitating towards the men, obviously. You know, the, the TV numbers are there. The dollars are there. Uh, for the women's side, unless it's a major, there's not a lot of viewers. And even when there's a major, it really pales in, pales in comparison to what the men are getting. So for Brooke to bring the LPGA to even half of what the PGA is on a weekend-to-weekend basis, 
that's a that's a tough sell. I mean, she's she would have to go on some kind of crazy streak, like win I don't know three to five tournaments in a row, and then people will say, "Who the heck is this?" Mm. and then really start to pay attention. Yeah, I, I, I and I w- even then, I think it's an uphill battle. Sure, it is. Yeah, sure it is. I, I we will see. We'll see about that one. I, I, we have a couple minutes left. I wanted to ask you while we're on this topic because uh-huh. we mentioned about Tiger and Phil in this pay per view thing. Yes. And for people who don't know, Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, the two biggest names still in golf, they're having a pay-per-view, one round, mic'd up, $9 million to the winner, mm-hmm. I think nothing to the loser, but I'm sure he's getting I'm something. I'm sure he's getting something. Uh, a six-pack and a drive to yeah. the course. Isn't this on like U.S. Thanksgiving or something? Like yeah, that, that weekend, yeah. U.S. Yeah. Thanksgiving weekend. Do you, will, and I don't know, it'll probably be 69 79 89 bucks, whatever pay-per-view is. Mm-hmm. Will you be paying for that? No way. Not a chance. No, I'm sorry. See, I'll tell you why. I'm now, not. if you put him in a boxing ring, I'll see Tiger and Phil go at it. <laughs> I'll tell you why I would never do it, and and I'm a I'm probably a uh, a palm tree standing in the way of a hurricane. I'll just be blown <laughs> out of the way. It doesn't matter. Yeah. The second people line up to pay for this, two things happen. One is the folks in sports go, "Huh, mm-hmm. if we." Do this, we can, so you'll start to see more and more and more sporting events going pay-per-view. I'm convinced that this is a test run of that. And the second thing is, if people line up for this and pay for it, they're now saying all the other golfers on tour. Don't matter. Why do we need them? Yeah. Why are, why are we even showing them? And here's the problem with that is now we already know that the golf channels and all the other places that cover it are showing Phil and Tiger 90% of the Mm -hmm. time. Anyway, Tiger, Mm -hmm. you know, someone's putting for a an albatross on a par five, yes. 4,000 yard hole that they've somehow hit. <laughs> and they're going, well, we're going to cut away to Tiger Woods getting his bag out of his trunk in the parking lot exactly. as he arrives at the course. I mean, this is just going to lead them to even more go down the road yeah. of only showing this stuff. And I think it's damage. I, I think it's got the potential to be damaging. Yeah. A one V one, especially with golf, which is a much slower pace than boxing or MMA, uh, or really, I mean, a lot of the other sports, uh, it's going to be drawn out, you know, when there's two, obviously going to be a little bit quicker with only two guys in a head to head format, but there might be a point in this exhibition, if you will, where Tiger or Phil is so far ahead of the next guy that the other guy has no chance. And I think they might be disappointed in the final result. You know, and, and 9 million bucks to each of the, I mean, 9 million bucks to you and I. Yeah. Is that's a lot life of life changing moment. I mean, that's They've Bill, that's Bill Kelly moments. money. Yeah, <laughs> but for you and I, that's a lot of that's yes. a lot of dough. At the same time, though, I mean, the Tiger Woods is probably worth close to a billion dollars. Yeah, uh, Phil Mickelson's worth half a billion at least. Nine million is nothing. What they need to do is get the WWE involved in this or WWF, whatever okay. it is now. Yeah. WWE, WWE, yeah, WWE. Yeah. Uh, remember how they have retirement matches? Yes. So the loser has to retire. Loser has to retire. Because, <laughs> you know, I don't want to watch these guys have a kiss and giggle. I don't want to watch them just yeah. have a fun old time and, yep. oh, I missed my shot. Ha, ha, ha. If I'm watching Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods, I want to see these guys yeah. grinding hard. They can get really creative. Tiger, Phil, uh, on this hole, you have to use a 1945 wood driver. <laughs> a persimmon uh, yeah, driver. Yeah, exactly. I mean, then, now you got me. Now, now you got me hooked. See, that, now that's on to something, because right now I have this feeling, too, that people are going to tune in, and it's going to be the two of them having a grand old yeah. time, lots of chuckles, lots of laughs, hey, Tiger, knock, knock, you know, I mean, that, I don't, that's not what I want to watch right. with golf. It's almost similar to the par three at the Masters. I mean, it's somewhat yes. entertaining at times, but for the most part, it's really not an entertainment piece for, you know, the fan. 
And yet, unless I have, you're a hardcore golf fan, well, and I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of people though who are going to pay for this. I mean, assuming they don't make it totally. Yeah. But you know, then again, people paid a hundred bucks for an MMA or a UFC or a boxing pay per view, so why would yes. they not pay for this? McGregor and uh, Mayweather. I mean, that was a, a huge sell. So who's the undercard for this one? Can you do an undercard? Eighteen in, holes is a long undercard. In terms of golf. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe just have a hole in one kind of competition with you know a bunch of the other guys. But would the other guys want to be the no? Undercard? They no. <laughs> hey Rory, would you like to be no. in the hole in one company? <laughs> no. Night. Yeah. Night. <laughs> no. That I, I don't know what you do. Yeah. Uh, but I see this as being honestly, I see this as being troubling. If I'm a tennis player, yeah. if I am uh, again LPGA, if I'm, if we can figure out if the if the TV people can figure out how to cut out all the riffraff, yeah, and just have the superstars. Man, if I'm a tennis player who's not in the top five, top ten, if I'm a golfer, I'm I'm very yeah, worried very about this. And there goes your purse too. I mean, that's cut by who knows how much. You know, you're going from tournament to tournament now. Now with a one on one setting, and you're not included in those big kind of paydays, you're shut out uh, large. Well, look, the, if, how about this for an undercard? Uh, Nicholas versus Player. There see, I go. would lo- I would love to see that. That'd be co- that'd be cool. I would love to see that. I, I don't know if they'd love to see that. Probably not. They, they still do the par three at the Masters, so they could do that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, and they do the ceremonial tee off. They do. Give them a give them a golf cart. They'll be okay. Tell them they don't have to walk it. <laughs> or I like your other idea is let's have other sports. Yes. Tiger and Phil in golf, and then Tiger and Phil in tennis, <laughs> and then Tiger and Phil in speed skating, speed yes. in those tights. Oh yeah, in the body skeleton, suits. skeleton. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, wow, the liability uh, insurance is going. Although, through, man, through the, the viewership roof. numbers are just going oh, straight up. They'd be intense. Rick Zamprin from Nine Hundred CHML. <laughs> thanks for coming in. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on Nine Hundred CHML. Did you know that the city of Hamilton had a or that Hamilton had a City of Music website. Did you know there was a website that was designed to bring attention and bring, well, do a bunch of things with music in this city, a site highlighting local talent and plugging the music industry? See, I didn't know about this, and I didn't know whether that was because I just wasn't paying attention or if there was some other reason. Well, it's irrelevant now, I guess, because my understanding is it's being shut down or at least reworked because it didn't, get all the success that it was was hoping to or that the plans were for it. Mark uh, Furukawa is the owner of Dr. Disc and he is a member of the Hamilton Music Strategy Team. He joins me now. Mark, how are you today? I'm great, thanks. And uh, we've, uh, we're actually called the uh, Hamilton Music Advisory Team now, so it's HMAT. Okay. Um, what you're referring to in the word strategy, I'm sure, is uh, in 2013, Hamilton uh, devised with the input of uh, lots of uh, peers within the Hamilton Music industry a strategy for the city. So there is an official Hamilton Music strategy that was developed in 2013, and we follow under the guidelines of that. Well, here's the thing about Hamilton and music, and uh, it's a good thing, because best I can tell, and I am not as tapped into every little corner of the music industry in this city as some people, but it seems certainly that in the last number of years, this is a city that has been a focal point that has done really, really well in the music business, whether it's popping out great bands or whether it's holding big shows or whatever. We seem to be doing really well in this. Oh, yeah. I, Hamilton, you know, I'm, people think of me as a true blood Hamiltonian, but I'm not. I came here in 1991 to open Dr. Disc, my music store, and I've been, you know, slogging in the trenches downtown as, a, as it were ever since. But the first thing I noticed here was uh, just and it's not just about the music; it's about the community supporting each other. And I 
honestly don't know what it is, whether it's in the water or whether it's because we're always, we always seem to be in the shadow of Toronto, that uh, people really stick together here, and musicians are uh, notoriously so. It's such a great, fruitful, helpful, encouraging community. More so, do you think, than others? Or if you go to any town, you're going to find the community part of the musicians who well, are existing there. The biggest uh, comparison I get all the time is musicians from Toronto come here, and they're just amazed. You know, like musicians lend each other gear here, or they'll help each other set up, or they'll encourage their fans to come to their shows and encourage them to come to the opening acts and things like that to support the whole scene. Um, they do shows together of differing genres of music, and it's really it seems to be a lot more cliquey in Toronto and a little more aloof. And like I said, I think it's just because we have that underdog spirit that we tend to band together and try and, and help each other. I, I often use the phrase, we all rise, and I think that's really applicable here. Well, this story and, and why we're talking about this comes to us, and I want you to explain this a little bit because, as I say, and, and I'm a little embarrassed perhaps that I yeah. didn't know about this, but well, I didn't. No, you know what? That, that, that's the point exactly. Um, you know, one thing, when the, out of the music strategy, this, um, and I, it, I was on the later incarnation of the previous committee, which I think was called the Music Industry Working Committee. Even the, even the title of the committee was kind of unwieldy and <laughs> unmemorable. But the problem being was they started out really gung-ho. I was uh, a member, like I said, in the later days. But the whole focus focus was on branding and marketing. And, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I was on board for it. But what you get with branding and marketing, we got a shiny new logo and this website was launched and a whole bunch of money was thrown at it. You know, it's sort of like it reeks to me now, and like I said, hindsight's twenty twenty of the emperor's new clothes. So you've got all these pretty, you know, tech things you want to do and you want to you, you want to do this branding and you want this logo but what's really behind it you know what what happens when you have this website with information or you try and populate it with with information and it's just so scattered and so random so what happened was um, at the end of 2017 um, some of the members who were very very pro branding and marketing left and we almost disbanded but out of the out of the ashes rose this new committee which unexpectedly I was nominated as chair for to try and piece back together and what we all decided was you know I looked around the table and there were about a dozen industry professionals with hundreds of years of experience, professionalism, resources, contacts in the music industry, all willing and passionate uh, and willing to give their time, effort, and energy into making Hamilton a city of music. So we decided not to disband but to refocus. So at the end of 2017, we launched into 2018 with a refocus. And it makes sense when you say it instead of bells and whistles like a website or something, we wanted to increase promote, enhance, and create new opportunities in Hamilton's music infrastructure. So we wanted to take um, what we already have, expose people to it, and that's what we've been doing. So I'll tell you a bit about a, a couple of our initiatives in a, in a bit, but exactly what you said about, yeah, I didn't even know there was a City of Hamilton website, or I didn't know, you know, a lot of people listening to this, it's the, probably the first time they've heard about the Hamilton Music Advisory Team. Yeah. What is it? What I've never heard of it. But what our failing, I think, our big failing is what was uh, developing a, a, a communications strategy of getting what we're doing out there. 
And I'm actually, you know, I, I looked at the CBC article, which called us a fiasco and we're going to sh- shut our doors or something. You know, it's just a bit overly dramatic. And um, what I want to assure you is we're continuing to work in the background, but what we want to do for 2019, and this article is going to help, your radio station is going to help. I welcome all sort of naysayers and all all you know, stand with them toe-to-toe to let everyone know what we're doing. But we want to bring the HMAT or the Hamilton Music Advisory Team into the forefront, into the discussion, and make ourselves more visible, transparent, and open up the lines of communication so people know what we're doing. So already, if you knew about our initiatives, if we knew what we planned for 2019, then this website closure thing, and it's not, I'm, I'm sorry to dominate your radio program, but I'm very passionate about it. Like, what happened was, you know, it's all about being prudent and logistically effective using the city's resources because we're a city-affiliated group. So when it came right down to it, we the, the previous incarnation of the team uh, spent money to develop this website, but what happened was, in the meantime, tourism um, who are hosting their version of the website, so if you go to hamilton.ca slash music, you'll see this website there. There's another website, cityofmusic.ca, which is the one that's going to go into dormancy. They're both sort of doing the same thing. Well, so, so who was, was this for? Mark, who? So, okay, there's a bunch of things I want to get to sure. here. Who was this website that was sort of the front for, well, not the, I mean, it, it was the visible part of mm-hmm. the committee and everything. Yep. Who was this for? Was it for musicians or was it for people who wanted to hear music? Yeah, no, what it was was supposed to be a comprehensive portal to uh, for anybody, whether you live here or whether you don't live here, to get any and all information associated with music. So the 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 idea was to send anybody there to have it to be this easily identifiable website that you could get access to um, information about grants, if you're a local musician, for example, live venues, what's happening. Uh, so you know, if there was a Mark musical. Furukawa band, we could go on there and find out where you were playing on any well, particular I, day. I don't have a band, but, no, but if know, there maybe was, that if there would was. be included. Yeah. But the thing is, like, be, just because like there were two websites more or less doing the same thing. Like, If you look at hamilton.ca slash music, it's not the be-all, end-all of websites, but there's a lot of information there, and it's really coming along. So what we decided, like the cityofmusic.ca came up for a renewal and it's like why spend more money on doing what the city's already doing with tourism to, to the website through it's not even tourism it's the city website I, I shouldn't say tourism but um, so what happens now is when the city of music.ca um, domain goes dormant it's just going to redirect to the website we all want to concentrate on now hamilton.ca slash music so it's it's sort of like um, like I said it's redundant and using city resources and money to, 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 to do the same thing on two different sites, which is confusing. And the thing about the communication strategies, you yourself who are in the entertainment field and media didn't even know about the website in the first place. Well, and it's not like, and here's here's where I think some people probably got, those who found out about it got yeah. a little bent out of shape. Yep. It's not like the city had paid nothing to make this happen. There was at least $60,000, I understand, that was poured into trying to make this go at least last year. Yeah, it, it sounds funny. Like when you when you talk about budgets, I mean, that's, that's uh, such a deceiving number. So here's an example of, of where some of that money went. Like, I think $3,000 uh, went into making the website, as I, as I recall. I'm not too privy on the former 
budgetary okay. constraints of the previous incarnation of, of, of the team. And, you know, I should be. I am now, I guess, because of Adam Carter's article. But, um, you know, that's not a lot of money to spend on a website, right? So what I look at is initiatives like, you know, what we're really proud of is things like the musician loading zones. And I'm sure you've heard about those. So what they are is they're signed loading zones in front of uh, venues that already had existing loading zones. But they say, welcome to Hamilton, musicians welcome on these posted signs. And what's, what Debbie Spence, who uh, is our liaison, one of their, our liaisons for the city, had to do and understand the ramifications of this. It sounds like, oh, somebody just put up some signs. But no, she had to go through traffic. She had to go through bylaw. She had to go through city works to get the signs made. She had to, you know, she had to go through liaise with four or five different city departments. And just to uh, change the bylaws to let these uh, musician loading zones exist. So when we get musicians coming from out of town and they're like, musicians, welcome, pull up here. You won't get a ticket. Unload your gear. You're recognized and welcome here. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. But imagine how much that cost. If someone well, walked off the street yeah, and, and Mark, tried to liaise with all these city departments, that's crazy. And Mark, the other side of it, though, is, too, it speaks volumes. I don't know if this is necessarily what we're mm-hmm. talking about today, but it speaks volumes about a whole lot of things about the city. If putting up some signs that say, welcome musician, took that much effort and that much red tape walking and tearing and going through bureaucracy, mm-hmm. holy cow, does that ever speak to how something like this, if run by the city... Mm-hmm. See, here, here's the thought that I had immediately upon hearing this. Yep. There are very few things, and I don't want to be dumping on everybody who no, works no. for the city. No, no. There are very few things that get made easier when it starts going through the public process. It seems like if you were to take you or some other people who are private industry people and say, let's put this thing together mm-hmm. ourselves." boy, this thing could have maybe been really, really easy and really successful. But see, I, I'm going to take the other side of the coin. Is I think you just proved my point. The, the existence of the Hamilton Music Advisory Team, the fact that we liaise with the city, we were able to get this done with a minimum amount of... of time spent because we sort of sent Debbie out and said, here's what we want to do. This is our, uh, you know, one of our advisory initiatives to the city. And she got it done. You know what I mean? If somebody was just a private or a nonprofit, how would they go about get that done? They themselves would have to liaise with every department in the city. And I, I agree. I've, I've learned more. This is my first time as chairperson of anything. And this is my first time as chairperson of anything that has to do with the city. And believe me, it's complicated. The city protocol is just a nightmare to, to negotiate. And yes, of course, it's hard to um, uh, start a business here or, you know, get signs put up or whatever, but wouldn't you rather do it with someone from the city right by your side taking off that responsibility from your plate? Yeah, and, of and course. again, and Mark, you know, again, I, I'm looking at what this city has and some of the things we touched on at the, at the beginning. I right. mean, Supercrawl and the Junos, exactly. and we got the Canadian Country Music yes. Awards. There was talk some time ago of a Canadian Music Hall of Fame yes. down on the harbor. Yep. Uh, we have all these bands that are coming. We've got Monster Truck playing the Labor Day Classic at Tim Hortons yes. Field. We've yes. got the Arkells who just did the rally. Yep. It would seem that with this kind of amount of, of, of stuff going on in the music mm-hmm. community, that building some kind of citywide strategy should be super easy. You would th- now, I, know, I mean, I know nothing is ever easy, but there's so much there that you could say, look at all the reason that we can do this. And it seems always so complicated. It, it is. And I'll tell you why. Like exactly for what you said, there's so much. Where do you start? So, I mean, the previous incarnation of the committee, and like I said, I was on board, was they wanted to start with the marketing and branding, but it didn't work. So what we've done is reconfigured, and we're down to building music infrastructure here. So here are some of the sustainable time, um, you know, 
achievable things that we're working on or have worked on. I just got back. I barely made this phone call because I was at City Hall. And uh, once again, it's uh, probably a lack of our communication strategy. But what we've got going on right now is called Music Mondays. And it's a free concert at City Hall for an hour featuring a local act, Hamilton Act, free to the public, right on the doorstep of City Hall every Monday at noon. So we had Mackenzie Lee Mayer, who's uh, or Meyer, who's uh, a country artist there. We've got, this is all leading into the Country Music Awards week. So we've got Brad James, who is an artist of note, country artist of note. He's there Tuesday, September the 4th. It's called Music Mondays, but the next Monday's Labor Day, so we're having it on Tuesday. And I'll tell you, there were like a couple of seats filled when she started playing, and at the end there had to be 50, 60 people there, and that's what it's all about. It's like that's a music infrastructure thing. And we've all, that was a pilot project that's got renewed for 2019, so we're really going to work on getting people out to that. So I already mentioned the musician loading zones, but one of the most amazing projects, and you're going to be blown away by this, is why doesn't Hamilton have a, a music archive? And what does that mean? Well, the library came to us and said, we want, to help, we want you to help us build a music archive. And I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? They said, you, you help us identify the criteria of what's a local artist. We're going to curate, store, and display and continue this in perpetuity, a Hamilton music archive professionally on site at the HPL. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that such a historical and cultural significant uh, thing to keep going for future generations? Oh, I, I'm 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 100% on board with that. Like, exactly. I've I've been a I've been a big backer and a big supporter of the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame that there got started go. a few years ago. Yep. I think we should be having something like that. Quite frankly, for music, if we don't already, and exactly. again, I, I if if we do, I'm embarrassed that I don't know about it. But I don't know of a Hamilton Music Hall of Fame. We should have yep. something like that. And, and so, like, I want this to work. I want exactly. Hamilton musicians to have a way to get exposed. And so yes. it's not just Arkells, although they're great and yep. not just monster truck, but they're great. Uh, it, but yep. it just seems so complicated all well, the time. That's, that's the point too, is like you have a lot of bands who are on the radar. What about these bands who aren't on the radar? They have just as much right to be in this Hamilton music archive for people to access them. You know what I mean? So it's, it's super important for us to build the infrastructure. It's not just about these big concerts. Like, everybody knows about what's going on at Tim Hortons Field, but who knows what's going on at the Casbah, the St. Hollywood. So it's up to us to make uh, things happen. And with our Music Mondays, too, our earlier sessions, Music Mondays, during the day it was at City Hall, and then for four weeks in a row, each week we had an early show, 7 p.m., all ages at a venue that might well have been closed on a Monday night. So we injected um, capital into the venue, made them money, made the bands money. We worked out a fair pay structure for any band that was involved in Music Mondays and is involved in Music Mondays. So we've been working hard in the background. Just nobody knows what we're doing. You know, for 2019, our focus is going to be on education. So October the 20th this year, um, we've got a musician subcommittee, and they're going to be holding a musician conference. So this is the venue hasn't been determined yet, but what we're doing, it's a free conference open to musicians to access um, information about business, grants, songwriting, production, that kind of thing. We were also, uh, we were part of, and I don't know if you heard about this, but this was a, a huge initiative for um, Mohawk College. They did what was called the Hamilton Music Career Day. And you know as well as I do, you went through high school, you kind of don't know what you're doing, but maybe you have a passion about music, which I did, and that ended me up in the store. But what about the, the hundreds of other kids or thousands of other kids who are sort of directionless in high school? Well, this Hamilton Music Career Day, it happened May 1st. It was a pilot project as well, and we liaised with Mohawk College to help them out with logistics and get panels 
analysts and things. There were, there were display tables there. There were panels there. There were live music performances. Over 600 high school-age kids attended this thing. And that's getting kids at this crucial juncture where they're deciding what to do for their career. And just having this opportunity for them to see all the different careers that are available locally in the music industry was mind-blowing. And it was so successful that it's going to be an annual event now, and we assisted with that. Mark Furukawa, the owner of Dr. Disc and part of the Hamilton Music... Tell me again, Hamilton Music... Advisory team. Advisory team. Thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it, Scott. It is... uh, The situation... I mean, it it was described as a fiasco, what's been going on with this website and everything else. I'm really hoping that what Mark is talking about is something that can actually get done, that we can help musicians without bogging everything down. It just, so many things, it seems, in this city and other cities, but so many things seem to just get tangled up in bureaucracy and good ideas end up getting just blah, 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 blah. Let's just hope that they can figure out how to actually help musicians, help grow music in the city, help continue the momentum going, because we've got a lot of good stuff going on with music in this city. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.